the little lamb started coming and so innocent, so cute, so weak, so tiny and uh, struggled to even get up and move around at all. And when they did, they immediately began to nuzzle mom, front, back, side, wherever, uh, trying to find some nana, which is difficult for them to do at first. But it made me think of the Lamb of God uh, before last night and uh, how he was so innocent and answered not or had no pride or vanity or ego that had to be assuaged when he was accused of things. So there's a, a lot of lessons there in nature with the animals and so on that we can learn from if we simply have the opportunity to observe and, and think about. Uh, as of this evening, we have uh, at 7.30 finger foods and wine. I think you've signed up for those. And then after sundown, we can have some table games and fellowship together. <coughs> so that's what's on tap for this evening. And then through the week, we'll have a meeting here at 7 each evening until the following Sabbath, weekly Sabbath, which is also a, an annual holy day. i got a question for you before actually we get into the sermon. How many of you have ever thought over the years, why do they cover the bread and the wine with those white napkins and take them off and put them back on and all that? Anybody ever cross your mind that that, or why that was done? Because God says so in the Bible, of course. <laughs> Can somebody quote me where? <laughs> that, that has crossed my mind. It usually doesn't until we're back there putting the bread on the plates and, and pouring the wine, and, the, and I'm thinking, why do we do that? Uh, it crossed my mind, I don't know how many times over the years, as to just why, but everybody did, and that's the way it was done in the church, so that's what we do. Uh, why? Nobody knew, I guess. Well, somebody had the temerity to look it up and, and uh, go through some different sources to see where that custom came from. And it basically, as I gathered from what I read very quickly, I didn't spend a lot of time on it, and I might should, but uh, it started out apparently in the Catholic Church uh, and then spread to the Protestants. And the symbolism for them is that it was the shroud of Christ, or his... his uh, Grave clothes, if you will, or covering. And I... Why? I see no reason for that. Uh, there's nothing in the Bible about it, and there's no symbolism there whatsoever. So, why do we do it? We don't. As of now. I see no reason to do that. Uh, and they say, well, you've got to keep the bread and the wine clean. Well, they, they also have lids and stuff that go over that. And uh, not only that, but immediately before we come in for the service is when we put the bread on the plate and pour the wine. And there's not much more time goes by there, really, because we do that at the beginning of the service uh, after a little bit of reading than if you put food on the table to serve people. So I don't know that that should spook us either. Uh, but... It just became tradition among 
Catholics and then Protestants, and then when the church began, one of those things that just kind of came along with it, I guess. So we just have to keep seeing where we're maybe doing things that the world is doing for either A, no reason, or for an invalid reason, or just some kind of symbolism that they have. I thought about it, and I went back and read Luke and John this morning. Uh, Christ was sitting there at the table with his disciples, and they had unleavened bread on the table, and they had wine, and uh, it wasn't all covered up in fancy dishes and white sheets. Uh, he just started doing it, gave thanks, and did it. So, uh, they also drank out of one cup. <laughs> I've been to Passovers with over a thousand people. Uh, that might get difficult, especially if somebody drinks deep. Uh, <laughs> so, perhaps it's good we have little individual servings. I think that's only logical and practical, especially with all the cooties that are around these days. But... Uh, wasn't a problem, I guess, among the disciples at that point. But uh, these things get started, and, and then they are maintained and go on for hundreds and thousands of years. So uh, then somebody says, why do we do this? Oh, well, no reason, really. Why would I want somebody's grave clothes over my bread and wine? I know it's symbolism to them, but it's not symbolism in the Bible. And God shows no... Uh, reference to that at all. The only thing he showed it, at all about that was that Christ, when he was resurrected, folded his garments before he left. Uh, he was far more meticulous in some respects and thoughtful in that way. I barely get my bed made. Uh, if I had just been resurrected out of a, a tomb, I don't know that I would have even looked back uh, and folded stuff up before I left. I would be out of there. But... Uh, a good example for us, I think, of order and a way of going about things. Anyway, maybe that's not a big deal and not certainly an earth-shaking doctrinal change. I don't know there was ever a doctrine. It just sort of happened because that's the way somebody had done it when they were in the Methodist Church or whatever, or Quakers, Herbert Armstrong. Maybe they did it, so he did it. Anyway. Let's move on. I want to turn, first of all, today to Exodus 12 and verse 40. Exodus 12, verse 40. <clears throat> Here it says, Now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Mitzrayim was 430 years. And it came to pass, at the end of the 430 years, even the selfsame day... It came to pass that all the hosts of the Eternal went out from the land of Egypt, or Mitzrayim. So it was 430 years to the very day. We don't know the starting day they went in. The Bible is silent on that. But it does make it specific that they came out exactly 430 years later to the day. And that day was, of course, this day, the 14th of Nisan, or Abib, uh, this Passover day. Uh, we've been through that in the, uh, the paper I did on the Passover and so on to show that the 14th is the day that is to be memorialized and to be a holy convocation and so on. And I think that is so very, very clear in Exodus 12 and other places. 
But he set this up to be done at exactly a precise time. Now let's go back for a moment and ask some questions. Why were they there in the first place? Why did they have to be there for 430 years? What was the purpose? Had they been bad boys? Jacob and his family, the 70 souls that went down there when there was a drought in Egypt, or Mitzrayim, the land of Ham. Why did God set it up so that there was a drought, or was this just happenstance, and they would have to go down into Mitzrayim to have food? I don't think there's any happenstance about it whatsoever. If you go back to the story in Genesis, there is... Uh, that story of Joseph and his father Jacob. And you know how his brother sold him into slavery or sold him into, uh, into Mitzrayim and then how he went through all kinds of trials there uh, and finally came out to be the one in charge of the whole land. <clears throat> this happened over a long period of time as he grew from a very tender age to an older man that God had put in charge there. And then the seven years of drought, and the se- or plenty, and then the seven years of drought and famine, which was set up ahead of time so that Joseph might be the one to save Mitzrayim and to save those from other lands around who were in a situation of drought. So obviously God set it up way ahead of time for that to happen. When God talks to Israel about going into captivity, generally he's speaking of national sins, of disobedience to God, forgetting God, idol worship, various things of that nature, and then proclaims that if they do that anymore, they'll go back into captivity. Now, was Jacob a bad boy? Was Joseph or his brothers that bad that it would require a 430-year captivity? That's a long, long time. Many, many generations. I've wondered at times, I think we all have, that uh, Jacob and his mother lied, deceived, stole a birthright, uh, and there's... No comment made on it, particularly, one way or another, about how that was a bad thing to do. It just is presented as a story of something that happened. And yet we all look at it and say, well, that wasn't right. And look what it did to Esau. It made him so bitter that throughout his entire life he could never repent. It made his children, generation after generation, so hateful toward Jacob that here at the end, God says Esau or Edom will triumph over Jacob at the very end. They'll have their chance at revenge or vengeance or whatever word you use. Then God will punish them again because he chose Israel. So there were some things wrong in Jacob's life and his mother that had... uh, lasting consequences down through the ages for thousands of years, even to this day. Now, Jacob also played favorites 
little Joey and then a little later little Benji were his favorites. And he showed preferential treatment to them, which upset his brothers. And they basically then contemplated murder, and in their hearts uh, there was murder. Then they decided to sell him into slavery instead, which is, I guess, a little better than murder. Not a whole lot, perhaps. So there were definitely some wrong attitudes and some wrong conduct among the very immediate family of Jacob, were there not? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are held up to us as our patriarchs and our fathers and those to whom we should look. But that doesn't mean we should always ignore the bad that they did. David, for instance, is shown as one who did a great deal of good, and yet he did some bad as well, and he suffered some consequences from it. So can we build a case as to why Jacob's family went into captivity for 430 years? Perhaps, to some degree, you could, uh, because individual sins like that that were the beginnings of a nation could have a great deal of impact down through the years, and indeed they did. I don't know that that is necessarily the case, uh, as to why it was 430 years. Why couldn't you do 70 years like they did when they went into Babylon? Now, there they had a very arduous, very hard captivity of iron. Uh, I mean, that was pretty oppressive. When Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and other of the Jewish youths were castrated, in fact. That's a fairly stiff slavery. So, on and on it went, and yet this was not that difficult a slavery at first. In fact, it didn't feel like slavery at all when they went down and they had seven years of food when they didn't have anything at home. And it only slowly, over a period of hundreds of years, began to turn into slavery. 430 years. Let's go for a moment back to Ezekiel. Well, I want to start in three, actually. Ezekiel 3 because there's a, a little bit of groundwork that perhaps needs to be laid here. As you know, Ezekiel was given a message from God that Israel was in national sin and needed to be punished and how that they would go into captivity. And in verse 17 of chapter 3, he says, Son of man, I have made you a watchman to the house of Israel. Therefore, hear the word at my mouth and give them warning from me. And then he talks about how he had a personal responsibility there. Or responsibility there. If he warned the wicked, then the blood wasn't on his head. Uh, if he didn't warn them, then it was. So God gave him this job to do, but it had to be done right. Verse 21, he says, Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man that the righteous sin not, and he does not sin, he shall surely live, because he is warned. Also you have delivered your soul. Now, it's interesting that God gave him a very powerful and quite a long message, really. And over and over we have seen, and going through it in the past, that God said, And they shall know that I am the Eternal. So all the things Ezekiel was telling them 
of their sins and God's retribution, and then ultimately their knowledge of who God really was would come through. And yet then he does something that is curious here in verse 22. The hand of the Eternal was there upon me, and he said to me, Arise, go forth into the plain, and I will talk with you. So he had something specific to say to Ezekiel at this point. Then I arose and went forth into the plain, and behold, the glory of the Eternal stood there as the glory which I saw by the river of Kibar, and I fell on my face, which is what you do when an angel of God or Christ would be there as you fall on your face. You fall over backward if it's of Satan. Then the Spirit entered into me and set me upon my feet and spoke with me and said to me, Go, shut yourself within your house. Now, he's just been telling him that he is to take this message to Israel and to Judah. And now he's to go into his house. But you, O son of man, behold, they shall put bands upon you and shall bind you with them, and you shall not go forth out among them. So, he said, if you go out of your house, they're going to silence you. They'll tie you up so you can't give a message. So part of it was an overt act from the Israelites around him, but that's not all to the story. And then God said, And I will make your tongue cleave to the roof of your mouth, that you shall be dumb, and shall not be to them a reprover, for they are a rebellious people. So he tells him, Go tell these people their sins. And then he says, they won't want to listen, they'll bind you so you can't move around and talk, but I'm going to put you in your house, and I'm going to make it where you can't speak. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth, and you shall say to them, thus says the eternal God, he that hears, let him hear, and he that forbears, let him forbear, for they are a rebellious house. So God would shut him up himself, and then he would speak to him and tell him, you tell him just exactly what I have to say. So it was a very limited thing here. That reminds me a bit of uh, Revelation 11, the first three verses or so, where it tells at the end time those who are commissioned to go and speak not to go to the Gentiles, but to have a very limited audience, and in fact, only the church, the altar and them that worship therein, at first. Later on, he opens their mouth to tell the whole world. So God sometimes has limited purposes or a limited way of going about things, I guess is what's being said here. And then he does a very difficult thing to poor Ezekiel, and we've read this and wondered what it meant. Chapter 4, verse 1. You also, son of man, take you a tile and lay it before you and portray upon it the city, even Jerusalem. So he was to take a, maybe a floor tile, some type of a tile, or a writing tile. He didn't have paper like we do then. And make a map of Jerusalem. I'd like to see that one because I don't think it's of the Middle East. Anyway, it says, and lay siege against it, and build a fort against it, and cast a mount against it, and set the camp also against it, and set battering rams against it round about. So it's like he's playing with 
what, what's the things the little kids use, the logs and so on, the Lincoln logs or something of that nature, he's to draw this map and then he's to set up all these things of seeds around it in, a, in miniature. And that isn't too bad. Moreover, take you to you an iron pan and set it for a wall of iron between you and the city. And set your face against it, and it shall be besieged, and then you shall lay siege against it. This shall be a sign to the house of Israel. Now, the wall of iron, I think, symbolized the type of captivity that they had been in and would go into again. Uh, iron means shackles. It means shackles around the neck. It means a very, very difficult captivity as opposed to what we might term a soft captivity or uh, minimum security, you might call it today, as opposed to solitary confinement or, or a place where the really, really bad guys go. But here, this is to be assigned to Israel. Now, they were in captivity, at least the Jews were, <clears throat> so this is a future prophecy. It says, verse 4, Lie you also upon your left side, and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it, according to the number of the days that you shall lie upon it, you shall bear their iniquity. For I have laid upon you the years of their iniquity, according to the number of the days, 390 days, so shall you bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And when you have accomplished them, lie again on your right side. And you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah forty days. I have appointed you each day for a year. So, here he explains that this is a 430-year symbolism. 390 for Israel, which was bigger. 40 for Judah, the one tribe. For a total of 430. Each day for a year. So, within the context, it indicates that this is speaking of a three of a 430-year period of time. Therefore, you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem, and your arms shall be uncovered, and you shall prophesy against it. So, what he was acting out here was a message <clears throat> to Israel, and it is a message for Israel today because Ezekiel is an end-time prophecy and winds up at the end of it with the final temple of the age and a transition into the kingdom of God. Behold, I will lay bands upon you, and you shall not turn you from one side to another till you have ended the days of your siege. This is pretty serious business. How many times do you turn over a night? I lay on one side a while, and that I'm so old it gets to the point I can't lay on that side, so I turn over. And I go back and forth as to what hurts the least, it seems. Can you imagine laying on one side for 390 days? You shall take wheat and barley, beans, lentils, millet, and pitches, and put them in one vessel, and make you bread thereof according to the number of the days that you shall lie on your side. 390 days shall you eat. And the food which you shall eat shall be by weight, so much a day, and so much water a day. And you shall eat it as barley cakes, and you shall bake it with dung that comes out of man in their sight. So the symbolism would be that your activities, your life, your culture, 
is the same thing to God as the outhouse, if you please. And the Eternal said, Even thus shall the children of Israel eat their defiled bread among the Gentiles, where I will drive them. <laughs> so he uses some pretty pungent symbolism. Then Ezekiel complained about that. He said, I think I can handle the 390, but can I at least use cow dung? Oh, okay. Still dung, but a lot more palatable than what he was supposed to do. <clears throat> Verse 16, Moreover he said to me, Son of man, behold, I will break the staff of bread in Jerusalem, and they shall eat bread by weight and with care, and they shall drink water by measure and with astonishment that they may want bread and water and be astonished one with another and consume away for their iniquity. Then he goes on to explain how Israel, Judah, would have decimation. One-third would die in famine and pestilence, one-third by the sword, one-third go into captivity. Most of those would die, and only 10%, a remnant, physically speaking, would remain. And then he took a few hairs out of there and threw them away so that it would be actually less than 10%. So that is slated for to happen very soon to this country and ultimately to the world. Now why 430? Why originally in the land of Mitzrium, were they there 430 years? Why did God do this again 430 years? A day for a year with Ezekiel. I find that quite an interesting parallel. Why not 350? Why not 510? You know, why, why 430? God is very exacting. He sets things up way, way, way ahead of time. And I think I can say fairly safely that that 430 years in Mitzrayim was not all due to Jacob's sins or to Reuben's and Gad's and Asher's and all of their sin of selling Joseph. There may have been a certain amount of impact to that where God laid a bit of it on them, but it didn't start out like a chastening, did it? So... I threw that out there, but I don't know that it is really the important factor. God sets things up way, way, way ahead of time. He took many years to develop the story with Joseph as he grew up and what happened. Then they went through the situation in the land of Mitzrayim for 430 years. Started out easy, got tighter, got harder. Mostly right at the end, but not until. But it was still a form of soft captivity. Why 4.30? And was God setting something up, very possibly, that would have a story thousands of years later, and it was done on purpose for a later generation to learn from? Can we consider that a possibility? That God would go through all that and put them through all that and then put 
Ezekiel through the same thing, only the man only was going to live so long, he couldn't have Ezekiel do this for 430 years. So he shortened it a year for a day, but gave a similar story or similar symbolism of what would happen for the iniquities and the sins of Israel. And he made it as an end-time prophecy in the book of Ezekiel, which is an end-time prophecy. Are we beginning to smell something here? Let's go to 1 Corinthians 10. And here I want to begin in verse 1. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant. Paul starts out, there's something you don't really know here, and I don't want you to be ignorant of it. I want you to see something that is important. How that all our fathers were under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized to Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. This had to all be... Paul picks it up with the actual deliverance at the end of 430 years and explaining it. But does that not have to include what came before? In other words, if you're going to have a deliverance, don't you have to set up something to be delivered from way ahead of time? Didn't he go through the story with Jacob and Joseph and Pharaoh and then later Moses and train Moses? Even when it was almost time for the deliverance to come, he took Moses out for 40 years and trained him before he came back to deliver them. So Paul says that they went through all these things and it had to include that which came before the deliverance, okay? Why? Verse 6. Now these things were our examples to the intent. Now wait a minute. I mean, where am I trying to read from? Verse 6, Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be you idolaters, as it were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed and fell in one day, three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur you, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. So he says, God set this whole thing up, and he says, I want you to learn from it. He delivered, and then what did you do? You went right back into sin again. Here's the one I was looking for. It all fits. Verse 11, Now all these things happened to them for examples... 
And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. God set that whole thing up, went through the whole thing as an example for us upon whom the ends of the world have come. Now, you can take a few things from that. Perhaps we're important. We can get egocentric and vain if we want to. But he does say, and we read it yesterday, that his people at the end time, his faithful remnant, are the apple of his eye, and no one is to touch them. So Paul is saying to the early New Testament church, who made up the first big group of people who will be in the 144,000, the Bride of Christ. He said, this is for you. And as far as he was concerned, the ends of the earth were coming soon, and Christ said, let them labor under that uh, that idea. And they didn't learn until almost time to die that it was going to go on for quite some time. So all that Israel went through back there was set as an example for people who would come later. The early New Testament church, and Paul not only repeated what had been written that the early New Testament Christians could read, but reiterated the story and God preserved it for you and me. So this comes down through the ages. He says in verse 12, something I think that is very important. Wherefore, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So this is a story written to the church, and it ties in very closely with what we've been studying in the other series on the temple, about why God blew the temple apart, or the church of God apart, because of lackadaisical, lukewarm attitudes and self-righteousness. Isn't that what Paul says here in different words? Let him that thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Didn't the whole church in Revelation think we stood, think we were okay, and didn't realize we were naked and blind and wretched, miserable and poor, spiritually speaking? Direct tie-in here that the end-time church just like the early New Testament church, would have the same problem, and it's recorded in the book of Revelation for us, which is certainly an end-time book, talking about the church today. So God has been setting what is happening in the world today up for thousands of years. Now, I think we understand that, do we not? In that he could write prophecies by Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Moses even, and Deuteronomy. All through the Bible, thousands of years ago, of things that would be happening today, and as we look around and observe, those prophecies are quickly starting to come to pass. So it is not beyond God whatsoever to set things up and know precisely what will occur Thousands of years before it ever occurs. We should be thankful we have that kind of God who can know. 
And not only can he know, he can also warn and he can give us answers as to what to do. He knew 2,000 years before the end time church would be here, what the attitudes of people would be here at the end time. And the Laodicean church would encompass pretty much the entire church. And then be able to explain the attitude and tell us what we need to do about it so that we might enter into the kingdom of God. We have that kind of loving, caring God who cares enough to set it up thousands of years ahead so that we might learn and know and profit from it. Now I'm going to get from there, which I think is rock-solid scripture, into a bit of speculation, and that's, I guess, what it is, and I'm not going to try to set dates or any such thing. But is the 430 years precisely an important time? Why did God set it at 430 with ancient Israel? Why did he set it at 430 in an end-time prophecy with Ezekiel and do 390 and 40 for a total of 430? Let's look at recent history. I say recent. You don't remember it, and I don't remember it, but it's fairly recent in terms of thousands of years. When was this nation settled? Your history books will tell you 1607 at Plymouth, right? As the first permanent colony. Now, we know from much research and history that there were many, many colonies that were established on this continent long before that. Uh, colonies in Iceland, on Greenland, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, various places that the Vikings and I think others came to. So, many, many colonies were established that, for one reason or another, were killed off or died off for starvation or disease or whatever, or just simply decided it was too hard and went back where they came from. Uh, that happened over and over again for hundreds of years before Plymouth ever happened. So, <clears throat> is Plymouth the key? From 1607 to, if you add 430 years to it, you'll come out, I think it was 2037, something like that, which is far beyond what some of us will live if time goes on here. Some of you would live that long easily if things were to continue as they are. Uh, but that puts it way down the road from what I see happening in the world today. Does or do those two periods of 430 years in the past have anything to do with us in this land today? Let's consider another possibility. There was another colony established. Uh, Queen Elizabeth had made a charter with uh, Sir Walter Raleigh back in 1584 that he was to set up a colony in this country so that England could claim North America. So, in April, I think it was, of 1584, he embarked on a journey to this land, 
as a uh, exploratory voyage. To come over, look it over, decide where was a good place to set up a colony and come back to England and subsequently then come and set up a colony. And he apparently was under some pressure that this had to be done right away or his charter would be removed and given to someone, someone else because the queen was very uh, in a hurry to get this done. So, in 1585, they embarked this time with shiploads, five ships of colonists, and they got separated and they all finally basically wound up at uh, Roanoke Island in present-day North Carolina. There they established a colony and uh, the shipmasters then took the ships back to England with a promise to return, 1585. Now that colony, no one knows what happened to. It's a great mystery. If you read, look it up, look up Roanoke Colony, R-O-A-N-O-A-K-E, Roanoke. And Wikipedia and other sources then will tell you that they may have moved from the original colony, perhaps a bit inland, or they may have been massacred by the Indians, or they may have starved to death, or they have all kinds of theories of what happened and why the next year when a ship came in, they couldn't be found. They had supposedly been, they had communicated that they would leave certain messages behind if they had time, if they were uh, taken captive or whatever. And there was a message left, uh, one word on a tree, and but they weren't there. But the ones who came back to visit the colony did not investigate what had happened to them. Oh, they're gone. And they left. So, no one knew for sure whether they simply moved inland, or died, or were killed. Just a total mystery. It is very possible that there was a permanent settlement there that survived, and maybe they intermarried, or maybe they showed up later and no one knew who they were after colonies had been established and there were people running around everywhere. Who knows what happened? I find it ironic that they had that voyage in 1584 and then established in 1585. Add 430 years to that and where do you come up? 2015. Most of us will probably live that long. Is that the 430 years of Mitzrayim and the 390 or 430 days or years of Ezekiel? Ezekiel is an end time prophecy for sure. Now, <clears throat> have we been in a soft captivity for these 429 years? if Roanoke is the correct one. Would next year make 430 years of soft captivity for this country? Now bear in mind <coughs> that when they first went down into Mitzrayim, it didn't seem like captivity at all, just as this today did not. When those colonists settled, 
They were able to have a certain freedom. They did pretty much as they pleased. And society began to develop and grow as more settlers came from Europe. Now, remember the story with Israel. Joseph was in charge of the land. He gave them the best land there. Gave them Goshen. So they had good land, good farms, good ranches. They weren't in slavery particularly, but they were there. Just as the colonists came and were not particularly in slavery, but they were here. Now, I prefer Roanoke because it's closer. And I'd like to see some of these prophecies happen while you and I are alive, and I think they will. So I, I like that better than Plymouth, which puts it way on down the road in terms of our lives at least. So, like I say, this is somewhat speculative. But the numbers to me are quite interesting. Now, God could have obscured what happened at Roanoke. If those people did survive, then they would have been a permanent colony. Whether they intermarried and and became brown and disappeared or not, they would have still been a colony that came here, settled this country, and stayed here. So, God may have obscured that history a little bit because this would be so glaringly obvious to almost anyone who looks at what happened in Mitzrayim and what happened there with uh, Ezekiel if you tied Roanoke to it. I, I think a lot of people would pick up on that. As it is, with the obscurity in 1607 set as the date in all the history books, nobody really thinks about it much. Maybe some people have tied that together. I don't know. But think about it. Over a period of time, and it didn't take long, people began to be forced into certain behavior. There were people in Rhode Island and a couple of the other colonies from what we can discern from the early records is that There were people who kept the Sabbath. There were people who kept the Holy Days, uh, Christmas, Easter. Some of those things were actually banned, were illegal among some of the colonies for some time. But it didn't take long until pressure was applied from people who didn't believe that way. And witch witch hunts started and people began to be killed for obeying, truly obeying God as opposed to English Protestantism, if you will. And over time, the news grew stronger. We had the Revolutionary War. Bunkerville and Bunker Hill, interesting. The Bunkerville thing has kind of receded for the moment. They had a, a standoff there. But it isn't over, believe me. Uh, It isn't over at all. They want that land. And they have apparently reasons that I won't go into that I've read and may or may not be true, but they appear to be uh, valid that they want that land for a big project with the Chinese. So where will it go? We don't know. But at any rate, we had a government set up in America, land of the free and home of the brave, with a constitution and a republic and all those things. But lo and behold, who set it up? Masons? 
Knights Templar, Jesuits were involved. So Washington, D.C. became a pagan symbolism with Greek, Roman uh, architecture, laws, and form of government. So we were the land of Israel, but ruled over by a Gentile-type government. And as a nation, over a period of time, have departed more and more and more from God. And now, worshiping God in this country is becoming something that is looked down upon. Homosexuality is looked to as a great thing. Murdering babies is looked upon as a normal, right thing. Drinking babies in our Pepsi products is thought of as okay. Cannibalism, but hey, so what? And on and on it goes. So that we are so degenerate and so uncaring that there is nothing of real value and morality much left in this country. We are on the verge of going down. Now, will it take till 2037 if the 430 is valid for now? And I think Ezekiel's prophecy indicates that it could be. Or will it happen sooner? Right now, as we sit here, there are nations who are not only planning at this point, but have already instituted trade agreements with other nations whereby they will use their own currency to settle their debts and their trades and their buying and selling among themselves. We got off the gold and the silver standard a long time ago, and all we have is a bill printed with a lot of pagan symbolism on it that is utterly worthless except the price of the paper, which is minuscule, other than confidence in our government that that dollar bill means something. And only as long as there's confidence there will it still be used. That confidence has eroded with our depth of debt to the point people don't want it anymore. So China and Russia and Brazil and South Africa and India and all these other countries are now beginning to trade oil for their own currencies instead of having to use the petrodollar. The petrodollar is the only thing that has kept our economy afloat because they had to have dollars to buy oil and energy <clears throat> and other trades in the world. And now there are great, great, huge cracks, chasms in that system. And our government is desperately trying to keep the petrodollar alive and is willing to go to war here, there, and everywhere to do it. And we've hammered quite a few nations to either get their gold or make them continue to use the American dollar. But now some of the bigger countries that we can't control are doing it. So the handwriting is on the wall for America and its financial system, even as the Bible says it will be. I do not see how it can go on much longer, because they are departing from the dollar so very, very rapidly. That could put this in the time frame that the 430 years might represent. 
very, very possibly. They are very upset with us. They want their money back. The Chinese want theirs back. Europe wants its back. On and on it goes. And they also hate us with a passion for us being the hammer of the whole earth, as Jeremiah 51 tells us. They want vengeance, and they want paid back their money. And it is quickly coming to a head in the Ukraine, perhaps in Iran and other places. And our own society is about to come apart. Uh, the little thing down in Bunkerville could have had been the spark that ignited a civil war. I will show you, perhaps before the day's over, that we are going to have a civil war and a revolution in this country. Very clear in Scripture that that is going to happen probably before we are taken into captivity and, and uh, destroyed militarily from without. So are we in captivity already? A soft captivity and about to go into an iron captivity? Let's go to Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah 32. And here I'll pick it up in verse 17. <clears throat> Our Lord God, behold, you have made the heaven and the earth by your great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for you. You showed loving kindness to thousands, and that's all he ever talks about in terms of the Bible is thousands. Uh, unless it's how many survive the Holocaust to come, which apparently is a hundred million there in Daniel. But when he talks about converted people, he always speaks of tens of thousands or thousands. Even when he wrote the Ten Commandments, he said that those thousands who obeyed would be blessed. Not millions, not billions, but thousands. And recompenses the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, the eternal of hosts, is his name. Well, sometimes the sin of the fathers goes down to the third, the fourth generation. God has said that. He says then that God is great in counsel and mighty in work, for your eyes are open upon all the ways of the sons of men to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. O oh God has vengeance as a tool of his own. It's not ours, it's his. And he will recompense, he will repay. Which has set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, even to this day, and in Israel, and among other men, and have made you a name as at this day, and have brought forth your people, Israel, out of the land of Mitzrayim with signs and with wonders, and with a strong hand, and with a stretched out arm, and with great terror, and have given them this land which you did swear to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, God began to give us this land in the late 15, 1600s, depending on what time you want to put down. A land flowing with milk and honey. And they came in and possessed it, but they obeyed not your voice, neither walked in your law, they have done nothing of all that you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have caused all this evil to come upon them.
we have gone from people who came here seeking God, seeking relief from a, an anarchical government in England, and we have abandoned God for the most part. Or he is only a lip service type of thing, or he's a spook or a fantasy or whatever, but he's not a living being who controls the universe and has something to do with the destiny of man. So here we've had this loving God, and only thousands will even attempt, really, to obey. So he will send us into captivity again because of that. Now let's go to Isaiah 51. I could pick dozens and dozens of scriptures to, to make this point, but just a little bit. Let's go, first of all, to Isaiah 51, verse 21. He's talking about the sins and how we need to wake up. And here he says, Therefore, hear now this, you afflicted and drunk, but not with wine. Staggering about, confused, frustrated, not knowing what we're doing, like a drunk. Whether it be the nation or whether it be the church. You can apply it physically or spiritually here, either way. Thus says the eternal your God, and your God that pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken out of your hand the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury. You shall no more drink it again. But I will put it into the hand of them that afflict you, which have said to your soul, Bow down, that we may walk over you, and have laid your body as the ground and as the street to them that went over. So he's comparing us here in the end time as a nation, as a church, to those who have bowed down to the culture and the society around us and been being walked on. Now, we've still considered ourselves a free nation, haven't we? Is the frog in the hot water pan heating up slowly so that he doesn't notice how things are changing, how hot it's getting? We have entered into a police state now in many, many, many ways. You have a semblance of freedom, but you don't really have freedom anymore. It is quickly being taken away as they trash the Constitution, trash the courts, trash everything but dictatorial telling you what to do with consequences if you don't do it. That's where we are. Do we have trouble, brethren, even as a spiritual body, shaking off the effects of the society around us? Does it chain us down? Go out. Try to find good food. Try to find good entertainment. Try to find good government. Try to find a good tax structure. Try to find good things that you can buy and that will last so that you won't be impoverished by having to buy the same junk over and over again and it never lasts long enough to even get the warranty started if there is one. We are enslaved. It's hard for us to break the bands that have been laid upon us. Do you think 
that they have destroyed the educational system in this nation without doing it on purpose so that our kids can no longer read and write and spell and do math or if the computer quits, be able to give you change for a dollar at a store. They don't know nothing and they probably think that was good grammar. We are chained. We are bound by this society and culture and the things that are in it. To the point, Monsanto, DuPont, those sounds like good farmers, don't they? Pharmacy companies, the medical field, were chained to their drugs, were chained to their foods, were chained to their genetically modified junk, were chained to their vaccines that cause autism in our children, And on and on it goes. How do you break free? What does God say in chapter 52? Now this is just before 53, which we read last night about Christ and what he did for us, and 54 and 55, which talk about a return of blessing, first to the church, then to the nation. He says, awake, awake. Put on your strength, O Zion. What we do when we wake up. And doesn't he tell us that we'll be asleep at the switch at the end? Parable of the ten virgins. Who will have oil and who won't? Put on your strength, O Zion. What you are about to need to do is going to require power and strength. Okay? Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. In other words, garments of pure conduct, pure thinking. He tells us a little later in this chapter, as I've already quoted yesterday, I think. Go out of the midst of her, be you clean, that bear the vessels of the eternal. So our conduct has to be straightened up. Our spirituality needs to be strengthened. To put on holiness. Not self-righteousness, but holiness, true holiness. For henceforth there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. That means that heretofore that has occurred. But God is going to change things. And when he gathers his people together, the righteousness will be of him. Chapter 54, verse 17, it says. So God is going to begin to make a difference, but we have our part in it. Only He can deliver us. Now, isn't that a lesson from 430 years in Mitzrayim? They'd been there that long, and the slavery had gotten very intense toward the end. Would they ever have gotten out of that place without God? Not a chance. They were so enslaved, so entrenched with the culture, the society, the religion, the beliefs of those people that they would never have even made much of an effort, nor would it have done them any good. It took the absolute overpowering ability of Almighty God to get them out of there. And He demonstrated his might, and deliver them in a 
a powerful way that is still talked about, talked about all through the Bible, is brought down to us to this very day. We have been in a soft captivity in this country for almost its entire history. We are chained to its morals. We are chained to its foods. We are chained to its drinks, to its educational system. Everything about this society is upside down and backward. <coughs> what kind of society kills its own babies? Fifty million. More that have been killed in all the wars that we have ever fought. Murdered by doctors in this country. Have our children passed through the fire? We looked upon it as child sacrifice and literal fires back in ancient days. What's the difference? Your brain scooped out by a little spoon while you're still in your mother's womb and killed. How abominable we are. God will not allow the uncircumcised and the unclean to come again among us. So he tells us in verse 2, Shake yourself from the dust. Arise, sit up, O Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the bands of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. He tells us right here in so many words that we are already in captivity. It's been a soft captivity. It's getting tougher by the day and the week in this country as we have less and less a rule of law and more and more a rule of power. And we are about to go into an iron captivity which will kill over 90% of us before it's done. That's where we are today. And God tells us to shake ourselves loose from this. It's about to happen. Is it only ironic that it's 430 years from the Roanoke Colony? I don't know that for sure. If that be the case, we should be delivered by next year, 430 years later. And God is very precise. And He did it on Passover in Israel's situation in Mitzrayim. Do we have another year to endure? I don't know. He might have counted from 1584 when they made the exploratory voyage for all I know. I don't know when God starts to count. It's just like when they went down, Jacob took his family down into Mitzrayim. We don't know when he started the count. But we know when he ended the count. 430 years later to the day. And he had Ezekiel do that 430 years to the day as a symbol and as a word, as a warning to Israel and to the church, to everybody, all of us. Now, is he going to be precise about this here at the end? Were those things given as examples for us upon whom the ends of the world shall come? I'm not trying to set any dates here. I don't know. He doesn't say. But he does give us 
at least two good examples of what he has done in the past, and he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, he may cut it short. He does talk about cutting something short, lest no flesh be saved alive. I have felt he might be talking about the seven last plagues there in the last year while the honeymoon goes on with Christ uh, being cut short, because that's when we're in danger of actually uh, everybody being killed. But he might cut other time short. Who knows? So I'm not trying to say that. I'm just trying to say that Paul tells us that what happened there with ancient Israel was done as an example for us today. And what Ezekiel did in an end-time prophecy is for us today. It's scary to think that this could possibly be true, is it not? that our nation could fall apart financially within the next year, that we might be militarily taken over. Revelation 18 says it's in a day, in an hour. Not specifically 60 minutes or 24 hours perhaps, but in prophecy that means in a very, very short time. And we're looking at a world coming apart and a nation who is at each other's throats. I don't think I jotted down on here that one scripture I was going to read uh, in Jeremiah. Maybe I do have that. Jeremiah 50. I could get to it tomorrow evening. Let me see if I can pick it up very quickly. Jeremiah 50, and uh, let's see, verse 28. This is talking about us. Uh, Here at the end time, it's talking about Babylon and its fall. Uh, Israel is the great whore of Ezekiel 16 and the great whore of Revelation 18. There's no doubt about that. I don't think we went through a great deal to prove that. So, Jeremiah 50 and 51 are talking about this nation. Verse 28, The voice of them that flee and escape out of the land of Babylon. So, we're under some kind of captivity or some kind of pressure in order to need to flee and to escape. Where are you when you have to escape something? In prison? In some kind of incarceration? In some kind of captivity? In some kind of confinement or restriction? So that you have to escape. That's what he says. And he says it of you and me and of his remnant people. The voice of them that flee and escape out of the land of Babylon to declare in Zion the vengeance of the eternal our God, the vengeance of His temple. So, there will be a voice about the escape. There will be a voice about what's going on. And we are to declare it in Zion. Uh, That's not the one I wanted about, uh, about the Civil War. Where was that? I may have to. I may have to get it tomorrow. It's, it's on my on another sheet. I didn't put it on this sheet because I didn't figure I'd get that far. But uh, it's right here in this Jeremiah fifty fifty one context about how we'll have war and be killed right here among our own people before the northern army comes. So I'll try to cover that. But I wanted to present essentially this four thirty and. 
then maybe we can learn some lessons from what Israel went through in the land of Mitzrayim and how that ties in with today and what Paul saw. He summarized it very briefly there in 1 Corinthians 10, but there's a lot more to the story and a lot more things that fit. So I'll stop for today. I'm out of time, and we'll pick it up tomorrow evening.